Well, welcome everybody to another episode of Mentally Unscripted. I am Paul. I'm here with Scott. Scott, how are you today? I'm good. I'm good. I am. Um, I'm looking into legally changing my name to Jim Eagle. Um, Jim Eagle. Jim Eagle. Yes. Uh, for those of you who aren't aware, maybe go listen to Joe Biden's, I guess, pseudo press conference that he had here recently, um, and you might, <laughs> yeah, you'll get the get the reference there. Got it. Okay. So I've been a little bit. Um, I don't know what the term is off the reservation, but I've just been kind of away from all the media input. So was it a good press conference? Did did he show his best side? I, you know, I didn't actually listen to the press conference itself. I listened to uh, Stephen Crowder's live stream of the press conference. Uh, <laughs> okay. So, uh, you know, for those of you who don't know, Stephen Crowder is a comedian who does a like a politically motivated or politically oriented podcast. And he uh, he likes to live stream some of these events. And it, it was basically a lot of Joe Biden talking with a lot of less than politically correct people cracking jokes during the entire pod, during the entire press conference. Uh, but anyway, Joe Biden was trying to say that some policy was it was worse than Jim Crow. He called it, it was so bad that it's Jim Eagle. It's not Jim Crow. So wow, <laughs> and that got a good laugh from the guys on the Louder with Crowder <laughs> podcast. So okay. You know, um, I think at the end of – I was going to wait for the end of the four years, but he, he just has so many good nuggets. I think I'm just going to put together a book of Bidenisms, <laughs> yeah. uh, which I'll have on my shelf next next to things that Ben Franklin said because I'm sure they're just as wise. <laughs> I'm sure. Uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, so, But, you know, to be well, fair, th- th- there would have to be a book of Trumpisms too. I mean, he didn't exactly oh, always hit it out of the park. So. <laughs> Oh, oh yeah, absolutely. Well, n- now I'm kind of wondering if we just need a, a book of 21, 21st century isms from yeah. our from our intelligent elite. You know, the ones right, that are yeah. are leading us in the in the glorious direction. Right. The the, uh, the anti wisdom of our political leaders. Anti wisdom. There we go. Yeah. That's that's what we're seeing today is anti wisdom. Yeah. I love it. I love it. Well, uh, super excited to have another conversation today. Is going to be MMT number two. Uh, this podcast was inspired by a, a recent podcast that Stephanie Kelton had with uh, two reporters from Bloomberg. And uh, we just we figured, hey, let's let's take another deep dive into the topic of MMT. Uh, it's, it's so timely in that uh, so much of the policies that we're uh, discussing at Capitol Hill uh, have an MMT component or that's the new uh, philosophy. And so uh, we want to we want to share it. Uh, with with all you listeners to see what your thoughts are and and uh, continue the dialogue mentally unscripted our whole goal here is to be able to have good dialogue about difficult topics with the people you love so uh, we're, we're hoping that we, we give you some of the tools and, and different ways of thinking that can make the the, the conversations more more exciting and, and more productive and uh, so before we get started though check us out wherever you are give us a thumbs up uh, like and follow subscribe if you're on Stitcher if you're on Apple if uh, if you're watching us on YouTube uh, check us out and, and add some comments we'd love to hear what you guys think uh, about the podcast your thoughts on the topic whether or not we're, we're giving it a fair shake and uh, and most importantly what we're missing because uh, you know Scott and I are very aware we've got our blind spots. Uh, we get all of our news from Steven Crowder, which, uh, you know, I'm not sure if that's good or bad. <laughs> I'm kidding. Uh, <laughs> I don't get all my news from Steven Crowder. That's what I'm kidding about. Um, it's, it's not but, the uh, news. It's the commentary that goes along. It's with the, the commentary. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Yeah. Well, that, that is news nowadays. So, uh, but we, we love to hear and uh, to be able to engage with you. So I'll, I'll kick this off. So 
we we had a, a podcast uh, a couple of podcasts ago in which we reviewed Stephanie Kelton's book uh, The Deficit Myth. And uh, if you listen to that podcast, I think you'll realize that uh, we thought the the book itself was was a pretty good read. Um, we were though disappointed on some of the elements of MMT that we felt just weren't described as well as we had uh, expected them to be. And so uh, I know for me, one of my complaints or challenges was that I was expecting a more robust discussion of inflation and perhaps a way of looking at inflation. And I didn't feel like I got that from the book. And I, I, I do feel after listening to this this new podcast um, that, again, was on Bloomberg. It was a conversation with Stephanie Kelton. Uh, and it's t- entitled How MMT Won the Fiscal Policy Debate. You can find that, I think, if you just uh, search for it in, in, um, in Google or just look for, for Bloomberg podcast. Uh, I, I do feel like I have a better sense of what they are saying and what uh, maybe it's filled in a couple of gaps for me. Um, Scott, listening to this podcast, how did you feel after hearing her, her speak about it? I mean, they're making the declaration that MMT is sort of our new – our new theory. This is what we're going to be seeing uh, in government. Do, do you think that debate uh, was won? I don't think so. I think it's certainly true that MMT has now become more in the conversation. So from that aspect, I suppose it has won, uh, at least to a certain mm-hmm. degree. Uh, I don't think that we're there yet. Uh, but it definitely, from that from what Stephanie Kelton was saying on the podcast, it definitely sounds like there are more politicians coming on board with it. Now, I wonder how much those politicians really understand MMT and how much of it is just the politicians hearing debts don't matter. So they actually so that's that's getting their that's hitting their radar and getting them interested in it. And some of the things that I've heard about MMT just, you know, from listening to podcasts, and from reading some articles, it, it seems like people don't quite understand MMT. And of course, I'm not an expert on it, but it's more than just deficits don't matter. We know that from reading the deficit myth book. There's a component where they have to track inflation and unemployment. Uh, and just from what I'm reading in the media, uh, like I said, on podcasts and, and blog posts, it, it doesn't seem like people quite understand the full extent of that. So I, I wonder how much the politicians understand that as well and how many of it, how much of it is just the politicians going along with something that sounds good. Yeah. Yeah. Sort of the literacy rate of, of MMT and economic policy seems uh, rather low. And, and, and in fact, on that podcast, she talked about uh, meeting with members of Congress as early, I think as two years ago, maybe it was a year ago. Uh, where maybe there was a, there was a sense that the the new administration had a very good chance of winning the election. They wanted to start uh, hearing some of these perspectives because it felt like a, a, a way in which they could start to envision how to structure some of the policy. Right? How much how much are you going to need with tax incentives uh, versus how much is going to be needed from uh, to, to pay for policy versus does that not matter to the same degree? And I, I would. I, I think on the, the theory or the, the belief that MMT has won the fiscal policy debate, I think if I was going to – how would I actually structure that statement? It would be something to the effect of our, our new um, conversation is going to be about what kind of output are you going to get from the investment uh, and then what kind of taxes do you have to take out in order to pay uh, or to, to decrease inflation. 
And if I take the, if I take that definition of, of being sort of the, the overriding policy or the override mindset for, for policymakers, and I contrast that with what is being said for the, the three trillion plus stimulus package, I'm hearing a lot of mixed messages. So, um, my, my understanding is that the, the administration has talked about different taxes on the rich, changing the way capital gains is, is potentially taxed, uh, looking at a wealth tax, all of that, which to me would describe that that has very little to do with actual inflation because it, it's more of a, a class struggle. And you hear, you hear uh, traditional terms used like fairness, um, you know, rich people have to pay their way. That's not being talked about in terms of, well, we're, we're concerned about inflation Therefore, uh, we're going to have to take some money out, out of the, um, the system, and, and this is the way we're going to do it. Do you think that's an accurate uh, pushback, I guess, on saying that they actually won the debate? I think so. I think that's very accurate. That was some of the notes that I have here uh, after listening to – or that I made during listening to the podcast reflect that. Uh, like one of the notes I have here is, you know <sighs> – is MMT really giving us an answer or are we just changing the debate? Are we going away from a debate over whether is the debt too high to a debate over whether inflation is getting too high? And mm-hmm. we're going to end up in the same position. You're going to have one crowd that says, no, inflation's not too high. We don't need to take measures to abate it yet. And then you're going to have another crowd arguing, well, yes, it is too high. So we need to start taking measures to, uh, to combat it. And she didn't give us any prescription for how we determine that. Uh, in fact, I don't know. I mean, you could probably turn to how many times she said MMT is descriptive um, into a drinking game and probably gotten quite drunk <laughs> off of it. Uh, and that's maybe one of the biggest problems I have with it is there's just there's there's no fundamental prescription for how you're going to execute this. Right. It, it's a lot of talk about, you know, what 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 what's going to be good. But you're not going to tell us how you're going to get there and what mechanisms are going to be in place to control it. Um, the example that I gave that I told you earlier before we started recording is, let's say I, I, I made a class to teach you how to write better. And I took some of your writing and I looked at it and I said, you know what, you just you need to use stronger nouns and verbs. And you come back to me and say, well, how do I do that? And I say, well, you just have to use stronger nouns and verbs. It's, it's descriptive, not prescriptive. You, you would probably tell me that my class was garbage. You know, I, I would never say that, Scott. I would, <laughs> right. I would be. Um, and, and I kind of feel like that's what's happening here is whenever the question was put to her about, well, how are we going to do this? Her response was, well, we just have to look at the situation and then decide at that point. And I yeah. think we need some sort of a model, some sort of a framework to go by. Like we mentioned, how do we know when inflation is getting out of control, right? Are yeah. we going to have any objective measure? And how are we going to – I mean, just simply, how are we going to measure inflation? Uh, well, I went out – sorry, to just one quick thing No, no, here. no. Please I, go on. I went out and I did, I did just a little bit of research here to uh, look, out, look up the problems of the consumer price index, which is our – the major way that we measure inflation right now, the CPI. And there's issues with the CPI. And I can tell you for certain that we, on the one hand, right now have the Fed saying that we don't have enough or that we don't have any inflation. Our target's 2%. Well, I can tell you for sure that when I'm going to the grocery store, I'm seeing prices going up. 
Uh, yeah. So don't tell me there's not inflation. So you've have this measure, this CPI that's measuring one thing, but it's not necessarily an accurate reflection of reality. So our, how is MMT going to account for that? Is MMT going to fix the CPI? And if yeah. it does fix the CPI, what what is the target inflation rate? How do we know when we're starting to get out of when it's starting to get out of control? And she's not given us that I could find any answers on that. Yeah, I, I, I agree with everything you're saying. I, I guess I'll, I'll push back or maybe just add a, a different lens here, a different color. I guess if if I took her argument that the CPI and other inflation measures aren't very accurate today. And so we're, we're, you know, maybe there's a, there's a way of seeing it as we're doing more harm by trying to track to those if we, if we, if we aren't able to get growth or we're, we're sacrificing growth because we refuse to spend money. And therefore, uh, we're doing more harm by trying to follow a broken metric. So I, I guess I can be sympathetic to that if, if there are specific, uh, uh, I would say methods or, or uh, tactical activities that they would take. So if, if they said, listen, we, we need to upgrade the way that we measure inflation at the, at the consumer level. I, I think that would be a, a very powerful statement. I think a lot of economists would agree with that. I, I'm not sure you would receive too much pushback. And, and I like you, I, I did some reading uh, to try and understand more about different perspectives on, on where we are with inflation today. And, there was a lot of disagreement with, by economists on whether or not we're seeing inflation, right? Because of, of where we are seeing differences in pricing. Uh, and, you know, someone who just went on a road trip and I, I saw my, my gas prices go up by 80%, it, it's, it's easy to feel, right, that we're, that we're seeing inflation. I don't know how much of this is cyclical. We've got obviously trade issues right now and issues with bringing in imports. Um, there's been a push by the current administration to decrease our uh, consumption of fossil fuels. So, you know, s- some of that's going to play in, but it seems a little bit near term to me to actually have played out already to see changes in prices. So I wonder if there's, there's some other constraints going on with what OPEC is doing. And, uh, and then that's just specific to oil, right? So I, I, I guess that is a frustration for me is feeling like there's, there's maybe low hanging fruit that they could say they could come out and say listen we've got some very specific ways we would change the way we're measuring inflation um, but similar to, i think what you're saying is that what i heard was no we don't have specific changes to that in fact in fact here here's what i heard when it came to inflation all uh, policies should be looked at in terms of what kind of inflation will occur based on the amount of spending or tax cuts that would be made and so uh when she spoke about the infrastructure project as an example, she mentioned, well, you're going to do a $3 trillion project. You know who you're going to talk to. You're going to talk to Caterpillar and you're going to talk to steel manufacturers and you're going to go in there and say, well, we're, we're going to do this amount of spending over this amount of years. Uh, can you give me pricing? And I, I heard this and what came to mind was this this terrible terrible story that I, I keep on th- thinking about which I uh, where, where someone's telling me they were reading a book about post USSR so after the USSR falls economists go and they, they meet with the um, the Russians to, to start talking about free markets and capitalism and different ways of restructuring the economy and they are shown the way that the central banks 
or, or the central planners would have these ungodly, unruly spreadsheets to try and manage how many bolts do we need and how many, um, you know, how, how much in this case, how much sand do we need for, for concrete and how much water are we going to need? And, and they just, these things went on and on and on. And it, it, if there was ever a change, a change in the ripple effect, right, of, of needing, you know, more or fewer uh, components, whatever the raw material is, they, they couldn't just react to it because it wasn't a market-based mechanism. It was a central planning mechanism. So I, I find it very concerning that um, there is this assumption that hasn't been tried yet, right? I mean, it's, it's very clear it hasn't been tried yet. She's saying, well, listen, we're going to spend $3 trillion. We're just going to call these companies and ask them for, for quotes. Uh, and then from there, we're going to figure out what the inflation will be over the period of time. Is that is that what you heard? It, pretty much it. And not to sound like a broken record, but what came to mind when I heard that is cronyism. How do we know that we're going to get, going to get the best price from these folks? How do we know that Caterpillar it doesn't have you know a couple senators in the in their pocket who is going to push through a contract with them that you know we could have gotten cheaper from a different company? Uh, right. And that's been one of my main concerns about centralizing all this authority in one place mm-hmm. is we're, we're depending on one group to act benevolently and to do things that they're supposed to do with the greater good in mind rather than their own financial benefit in mind. Right. And she, I don't think she mentioned it in this podcast, but remember in the in the book, The Deficit Myth, she said that democracy will take care of all that because we'll just vote out the people who are bad. Well, I mean, we see how often that works. And (laughs) when you're voting out people who are bad just to vote in people who are equally bad, how far is that going to get us? So, And I know that's a little little bit off track of what you were asking, but I think it it, it is problematic. Um, You know, as far as more specifically to your question, I I don't know how they're going to be able to, like you said, estimate all that stuff accurately. Um, We talked before about that SAI pencil where, you know, just creating a pencil with the wood and the lead and the the little rubber tip for the eraser is an incredibly complex process. And no one can, there's no pencils are that can sit in Washington and determine all of the inputs that we need for that. So you you have to let the market do it and the market's not going to be perfect, but it's, you know, it's not subject to the same failings, I think, as having a central planning authority. Uh, well, yeah, different corrective measure, right? right? And right. that at some point the consumer, be it a business or an individual, stops paying the pricing. Exactly. Uh, or, so you, yeah. you have feedback. Yeah. If, you know, if you're the one who's putting the pencil together and the input for the erasers gets to be too high, you can go to another company and say, hey, mm-hmm. you know, do, or another company can come to you and say, Hey, we have an innovation that will cut the price of your erasers in half. So, right. right. And how much incentive is there when you have these companies that have basically captured the market uh, through the relationships, relationships with government. And it, it reminds me a lot of the, the communist model where it's the people who are, closer to this the, to the power structure are the ones who benefit the most so they don't have any incentive to change the power structure and and we have that in the u.s too i don't want to say it's just a communist um, no it's just a characteristic of communist governments but 
Well, it's it's it, but I guess a way of, of thinking about this, if you, if you're gonna, if someone's gonna be asking you, what do you think about more planning or less planning? There, there's a there's a tension between more of a market based mechanism in democracy versus more of a central planned. Um, I don't want to say necessarily more of a you still you can still be voting in a more of an authoritarian regime, if you will, uh, or more of a, a controlled regime. But the, the the difference between more of a central planning and a um, market based mechanism, there, there's a trade off there um, and it has to deal with with resiliency, flexibility and innovation, uh, at least from my, uh, my my understanding of how the markets and the government work. And so it's. You know, many of these systems can work for periods of time uh, where you're, you're achieving some of the metrics you're looking for, if it's stability in pricing or in um, growth, you know, at the GDP level. But it's it is more of a question of long term sustainability. And I think I think that's what you bring up when we talk about democracy. MMT is saying that the the mechanism for correcting on excesses is democracy. What we're seeing in this country, and we—I know—we've we, done another podcast about this topic—is that there there isn't enough emphasis on making sure that there's credibility in the voting system. And if if I'm concerned with the elected officials, um, or, or or I need to feel I have the power to uh, correct the the government, I have to have belief that the elections are going to be fair, well administered, accurate. And there isn't a lot of emphasis on that. I know, I, I, at least I think there's some discussion right now about um, some new bills uh, about voting that are going to be coming to the floor in the next uh, few months. Um, I, I don't think that uh, from, from what details I've heard, they've really got into what I've even discussed. It's, it's more about expansion of, of getting more people access to vote uh, rather than uh, belief in, in the system being uh, valid. So it, it does it, it feels like there's there's an assumption here um, that, that 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 continues to ride well and we have to just believe that it rides well and, and I think I, I, I don't assume that no and in addition to the credibility of the the election system itself what method of accountability do we have for the people when they when they do make mistakes, you know, whether it's an intentional mistake or an unintentional mistake. Um, and right. if, I guess if there can be an intentional mistake, but you know, no matter, you know, whether it's Nancy Pelosi breaking the breakdown, like breaking the lockdown rules, excuse me, to go get a haircut or it's Adam Schiff telling the country that he's, you know, he's got the smoking gun evidence that, you know, Trump is a Putin puppet which we have yet to see right. there's been no accountability for these folks. So mm -hmm. I'm just not, I'm just not convinced that there's, there's any mechanisms built into the system for that. Right. I, I, I'm obviously of the same mind and, and I, I want to be charitable to what they're trying to talk about here because, uh, because I, I know I feel like I'm piling on a lot about all, all the complaints there, um, I read another article, and this goes back to the inflation, where I, th I think if I'm going to be charitable, I think they are trying to give a what actually happens on the ground view, so a description of what is actually happening. So the article talked about the complexity of trying to model 
inflation. And it, it describes sort of two different types of pricing. Um, one of them is going to be a market-based one where regardless of the inputs of the product, you're going to uh, – whatever the market is willing to pay is what you'd be able to charge for it. Uh, and then one of them is what they called more of it, and they call that, I think, fluid or dynamic uh, pricing. And then the other one was more what they called administrative, uh, which which is where you're trying to you, – you basically take your costs and you just mark that up, a, cer- a certain percentage. And that is more – that's the administrative one, and that's where uh, governments – or other types of, of entities are trying to create more price stability. Uh, so, you know, th- there is no market mechanism. You can't just go in there and say, well, listen, I'm willing to pay twice as much for this. It's like, no, it's all, it's all here's the price. Well, can, can, I, can I discount it if I do mass? No. It's, it's, and so a lot of the administered uh, pricing is for uh, government-based services uh, where they will do just that. And, and you also, I think, get that in restaurants oftentimes, um, you know, having worked in them, when we talked about, well, what should we charge for items? It was, it was, it was kind of just a, a, a certain type of markup that we would do that would include raw materials and overhead um, type of expenses, and then just put a percentage on top of that. It's kind of a clean, easy way to price. Um, it's it, there's there's I guess pros and cons. In your mind, do you think that those are the to, I mean, describing the sort of the two different pricing structures, do you think that's an accurate description? I, I think so. Uh, one question I'd have, and maybe you can answer this since you're more of an expert on this. Like you were mentioning in in restaurants frequently, you'll do like a cost plus. Is, cost plus is kind of what, what it sounds like you were saying, where you look yep. at your costs and you do a markup, but you still have market price discovery involved there. Uh, maybe... You know, maybe what you're charging for a sandwich isn't necessarily price discovery in the market, but the cost of the inputs are. Like you're going around to the different mm-hmm. suppliers and getting the best deals that you can. So there's still a component of price discovery in there. And I'm just, I'm not sure that that would happen at the government level. Like I said, I, it didn't sound to me like they would be going around to 50 different competitors and getting bids and picking the, the best value. Well, yeah, and actually, I've seen the the inverse of that actually, which is that, uh, for example, I think in in parts of California when they're doing bids, they they request blind bids. All the bids come back, and in some places they're they're required to actually take the lowest bid, which sounds good in theory because you're you're assuming you're getting the person that actually is doing the uh, the be- the you know is giving you the best price and so the government isn't being price gouged however uh, there's there's other questions that come into play such as quality timeliness um, so there's there's other aspects of the bid and so what I'll hear then is well wait a second now we've got all of these requirements that they, that every single one of the bids must hit in terms of, you know, if they're a provider, they have to be bonded. Uh, they have to have certain references. But but there's still ways in which some of that gets gamed, right? Uh, and so I, th- I think ultimately what we're talking about is a principal agent issue where who the person that's making the choice, right? So they've tried to systemize it down to say, we, we have a set of rules that are going to identify the right type of contractors that can come in and bid. And then we have, um, we have, a, we have a, this, this, 
mechanism that basically says take the lowest price. So we're expecting these people to come in with the with the right price, right? It, it, it sort of removes someone to come in and say, well, wait a second. What if what if someone comes in and says, listen, I've got a brand new technology. It's we've tested on three clients. It's absolutely amazing. I'd like to be able to do it here and do some again, like you said, market discovery. If if it if it's able to be achieved, we'll provide this kind of benefit to your citizens. Governments are notoriously outside of certain areas like DARPA, uh, where, where where they're willing to spend and test. They aren't very good at adopting new technologies. Uh, I think you can look at any government website and conclude that's the fact. I, I don't think I'm saying anything controversial at this point. Is is what I'm trying to say. So it's 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 difficult to see how they round that out. So uh, to, to go back to the to the initial point, I I think because of who's in charge and and perhaps. You know, to give them again to try and be charitable here. Perhaps we need to be thinking about more about governance uh, and less about you know the specifics of pricing uh, to try and get this right. Maybe that's the real challenge here. It's it's just you know how it, government is responsible with uh, making decisions for the citizens, which almost implies that they're not going to be making it for themselves, and therefore they they have some they've already diverted some of the risk. So it's it's kind of difficult for them to be able to to make the right choice, if you will. I, I don't know. Do you, I, I feel like I, I kind of skirted around it, but I mean, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think that's, that's accurate. Uh, with a central authority wielding so much control over these infrastructure projects, I think you're right. What incentive is there going to be to innovate if that innovation isn't going to meet the current government dead, uh, guidelines possibly, or, say one company manages to get an innovation in, this is the hot new thing, the government's going with this new innovation, well, then is there any incentive for that second market disruptor to come along with another innovation? Right. So, I don't know. I I think there would have to be some, I think there would have to be some major overhauls to the way business is done in the government. And, and again, without any prescriptive thoughts coming from the MMT folks on how this is going to happen. I just, uh, I don't know. I'm just skeptical because at some point we have to stop talking and start executing. And I think even if it's a, even if it's them saying, listen, we don't know exactly what the best thing to do is, but we're going to start here and we've got a process in place to evaluate and update as we go along so that we can come up with the best process or, or keep the process as, as good as possible as we move through the years and the decades applying this model, then, you know, then maybe it's something that would be a little more compelling. Yeah, I, I agree with that. One of the points of concern I have, and this is just a principle based one, not, not really anything data driven yet is that in, in the description I read, it was, uh, again, someone trying to describe from an MT perspective, how they saw inflation uh, they, they talked about sort of the right size of government and, and particularly if we talk about those administrative prices, the larger the government is in terms of the economy gives them bre- better sway on controlling prices because they're doing that markup um, type of mode rather than price discovery in, in, the, in the more fluid uh, realm. And you know, one of the examples they gave was World War II uh, saying, well, that, that was an area in which we were doing much of that for most of the economy. So in and obviously, wartime and peacetime are not the same modes. 
right? And, and you do need times in which you're working um, in different sort of those two different worlds. And I imagine there's there's something in the middle, but I, I kind of separate the two um, pr- pretty strongly in terms of where do you need your resources to be deployed during, during war uh, versus peace? What kind of expectations do you have of the citizens for uh, sacrifice, right? And I, I come back to my grandmother talking about what they had to recycle during the Korean War. And the, the sacrifices that they made if you spoke to someone today, even though I, I realize we've been in Iraq and Afghanistan for, for 20 plus years, probably our, our longest war on record, um, it doesn't feel that way to most people. They're not having to make a sacrifice. So in their minds, they're in peacetime. And if you, if you told them that we have to start sacrificing, every no one can eat breakfast until these wars are done, you would see a very different response from this entire country. Um, and so you know, them using that as a model for how we could administer prices, it to me is rather frightening, uh, because uh, you're 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 implying that we need to to increase substantially government input into how it how it manages the economy in a way we haven't seen since since World War II, and that that is the appropriate way to maintain uh, inflation, and it, it there, there's there's something about it that I, it, it's almost difficult for me to describe, but I mean it. Uh, when you hear that, what, I guess what is your initial reaction? Um, yeah, that's that's new to me. I think you're right. Wartime is not peacetime. Uh, but the other thing we got to keep in mind is when we're comparing World War II to today, there's one fundamental difference. During World War II, we had a hard we had a hard money standard, right? We only had so much gold to spend, so we had to ask the citizens to make sacrifices. On a fiat money system, like Stephanie Kelton said in the deficit myth, we can just hit a keyboard, you know, hit the enter key on a keyboard and create more money. So we've shifted away from a uh, a mentality of sacrifice to a mentality of you never have to sacrifice. And that, <laughs> and so I, I don't know how you can compare today to World War II. I know. I've heard some economists and some talking heads compare COVID to World War II. And, you know, in World War II, like you said, right, people were on rations. They could only have so much right. flour and butter. And today we're talking about just don't worry. We're just going to send you checks. It's it's a very different environment. Right. Yeah. It's So th- these comparisons fall flat. And I, and I, I feel like it's lazy thinking. Um, you know, it, it's funny, as you said, you know, we, we don't have to worry about any sort of cost or sacrifice what came to mind is, is people playing video games and you can die as many times <laughs> as, as it happens in video games you can take risks in video games you can try jumping off a ledge uh you can try running your car into a building you you can uh you can rob a bank right you, all kinds of risks that you can take in that world and there's no there's no real consequence right, right? right. other than you don't win the game <laughs> uh whereas here the reversibility is is much different right it, it uh, and we can see that around the world if you look at economies that um, have high levels of inflation um, and they've got low growth, uh, low low standard of living, it's it's in places where there is no trust, right? Uh, where there's there's uh, there's a lack of of belief that things are going to get better, and 
uh, once you lose trust, it takes a long time to bring it back. Exactly. Um, yeah. So maybe we could just start thinking of MMT as the uh, ultimate real life cheat code, I guess. That, oh, that, is that, that what? will give you just unlimited <laughs> lives. Uh, you just unlimited go, go lives, do whatever. Um, uh, yeah, I don't know. It's like I said, not to not to beat a dead horse, but I, I just think there wasn't much in this podcast that really changed my uh, my attitude after having read the deficit myth. I don't know that she said a whole lot that was new. Uh, yeah, you know, like you but, mentioned, she maybe but, but, gave a little little more explanation on inflation, but it's, so there's still. As she said, you know, it's still descriptive and not prescriptive. And I get yeah. it. Until we actually try it, we may not have any prescription. But, uh, you know, give us something to go on. Give us some initial right. steps that you're going to take, something that you're going to try. Don't just keep saying MMT is descriptive, not prescriptive, but we need to do it anyway. Well, well, let me ask you to, to I guess, to hit on some fine points here. She mentioned that the role, the dual mandate that the Fed has of uh, employment and inflation, it's the right mandate, but they're the wrong ones to manage it and that uh, it should be more fiscal policy uh, and that fiscal policy is the way to manage it. Um, what I, I think we've ta- talked on that or spoken about it on our previous podcast, but let's just revisit that. What, what are your thoughts on that? Do you think it's the wrong mandate? To have it all, do you think that she's right and that it should come back to the government, to the fiscal policy? The first thing that comes to mind is she's she's given us a choice between government and government. It's basically what it is. And she seems to just discount any free market solution. I know in the deficit myth, she brought up the Gilded Age and then she quickly dismissed it as, well, we don't want to go there because wealth inequality was too high without any explanation right. of why. Well, why is wealth inequality necessarily so bad? Um, right. And yeah. how much of that wealth inequality during the Gilded Age was due to just you know some group of people being able to uh, provide more value to the, to the economy and reap the rewards of it versus wealth inequality today that's a result of government policies and, again, cronyism. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's funny you say that. I think there was a, some beef on Twitter between Elon Musk and Bernie Sanders. Where Bernie was calling calling out Elon about his hoarding of assets and how much money him and Bezos have made. And Elon responded something to the effect of, well, I'm, I'm trying to get people to be an interplanetary species. I'm hoarding. <laughs> I'm trying to accumulate assets so I can make that a reality. And it, it really strikes me the difference between sort of the bureaucrats that govern and the visionaries that create. And that's that's really what you said when you talk about it's a it's a question of government and government. There's a, there's a mentality that's very different, um, and I, I'm not sure that there's a way to square that right. Where the government will, you know, people I think like Stephanie either assume that um, innovation creation just happens, right? Um, they in that in this MMT world that of course it would still continue to happen because there wouldn't be that many restrictions. Um, and Bernie is, of course, saying, well, no, it's fine that, that Elon has some some wealth, but he doesn't need to have all of it, as if his wealth is is the reason that, that there's issues, right, in other parts of the country. And, and, and again, this is this is coming from a guy, he's, he's complaining about wealth inequality. Uh, he's been one of the biggest proponents of MMT, 
So he's not talking about inflation. He's not talking about the fact that that you know Elon Musk is is spending money or into to create a, uh, the economy of space, and therefore um, you know it's problematic because we're going to heat up too quickly. He's just talking about purely on class class issues. So I I have to say it comes back to my original point. I'm not sure you know MMT has really won the debate uh, because they're still talking about issues that are you know very 20th century in my opinion. Not that wealth inequality isn't an issue, but it's how it expresses itself, and it's also a question of, of how do we actually talk about you know people like Elon Musk who, in my opinion. Uh, is is crazy, radical, and probably one of the best assets the United States has has had in the last hundred years. Exactly, and let's not forget, a lot of Elon Musk's wealth is a result of government subsidies. He made yeah, he made true. liberal use of government programs to get yep. Tesla going and to keep it afloat. And I think I heard recently they they're still selling cars for less than what it costs to make them. Wouldn't be surprised. Uh, you know, I don't know if that's true, but if that is true, I mean, how long has Tesla been around? I mean, are we going on what, like fifteen uh, years? I want to say fourteen yeah. years. Yeah. So yeah. It, it's it's not all free market that's making that happen. You know, no, there's, there's definitely and, government and actually, input there. Um, right. And, and no, it's funny you say that because you could actually bring it back and say, "Listen, Bernie, he's actually doing what you're asking him to do. You created the incentives; you just took him for a ride." Right. And, you know, now that he's benefiting immensely from it, you know, is that how much of that is his fault? How much of that is the government or the the people who put those incentives in place? How much how accountable do they have to be for that? Uh, Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, and and, and SpaceX, right? SpaceX, I think, is is making money taking cargo up to NASA facilities right or or international space station facilities so again it's it's a government private partnership um i i still i'm still very biased towards sort of the the creator type but i mean you you you'd be a fool to ignore everything that you just said which is that there's this um you know the, the markets basically they were not the the best place for him to get the funding to do what he's doing exactly right and we mentioned it on our last podcast. I, I don't recall her, Stephanie Kelton, mentioning it on the, the Bloomberg podcast that we listened to. Uh, but how exactly is MMT going to smooth out that wealth disparity? Um, you know how how is it? It's going to make everyone poor, <laughs> right? Yeah, <laughs> right. Equally poor. Right. It was the Churchill quote, right? The inherent vice of uh, capitalism is the unequal sharing of blessings. The inherent Virtue of socialism is the equal sharing of misery, or something like that. Uh, uh, yeah. yeah, I haven't. Heard, I love that um, though. I love that quote. So, right. So, what would be different in an MMT world, in as far as Elon Musk goes, and is that something we really want to change? You know, the right. innovators, right? They're the ones who are putting their their capital, their reputation. They're the ones who are putting everything on the line to build these companies and to try to push humanity forward into the next, into the next century. Mm -hmm. So do we want to take away that incentive and who is going to decide, well, how much is enough? Because didn't Bernie Sanders at one point or maybe recently say that, you know, people should be allowed to keep, or maybe you just mentioned it. Maybe that's where I heard it, (laughs) but people should, (laughs) you know, you should be rewarded by keeping some of your profits. Well, but who's going to determine how much that is? 
Right. And right. at what point is someone like Elon, Elon Musk going to say, well, you know what, the the government's capping my my reward for this, so I'm not even going to try. I'm not going to take the risk. Right. Yeah. Or there's there's another element, too, that if there's a, another jurisdiction government that can offer up similar benefits and says, well, come, come here and, and make this dream a reality, there's, there is a market-based world that uh, I think has probably existed over the last couple hundred years where people could go to different countries and, and sort of game those systems. But that's just going to increase. Uh, and we see the tensions at a, at a multinational level where, you know, a Russia can offer you up certain certain incentives if you you can come there, bring them technology, bring them the opportunity. A lot of people wouldn't do that today. It's hard to say where that will be in the next 20 years, right? Um, and, and China China's done that with a lot of um, professors where they're, they're trying to get some of those, the, the better minds to come and they'll, they'll, they'll give them money, different um, funding sources so, to do the work and bring the technology back. So yeah, the, there's a game that's being played and it, they, they do it dishonestly uh, in, in my opinion. And uh, there's, there's benefit to politicians to divide us by talking about us versus them. Uh, and, and I, I see the benefit playing out uh, because it gets a lot of it gets a lot of support, uh, but I, I, I'm not sure that people really understand the cost of supporting that type of dialogue or that type of uh, politicalization of our of our future. Um, right, and well, so, yeah, and I yeah. was just going to say, I mean, for folks who maybe don't believe that that's true, back when Bernie and Elizabeth Warren were first floating their wealth tax idea, which apparently is just come back again uh, if i'm under if i was reading the news correctly i i saw some folks give an example of the owner of ikea basically took off from sweden when sweden implemented a wealth tax and right and even after sweden i guess they kept trying to sweeten sweeten the pot to get him to come back and he was like no i'm not coming back so you can tax my wealth and it wasn't until yeah. they got rid of the wealth tax and he felt more secure that he actually went back to Sweden. Uh, I may not have that story 100% correct, but something along those lines. And to further show that it's not true, I heard something that Elizabeth Warren was going to put in, in her wealth tax proposal. There was going to be some mechanism in there to prevent Americans from taking their wealth out of the country. So they're essentially yeah. going to be building barriers to trap people in the country, which – Right. I don't know how you call that freedom in the land of liberty. No, you don't. You don't. And, and you, you have to ask the question. Again, this goes back to, uh, which actually dovetails really nicely into what I wanted to ask about, uh, because I, I thought this was probably one of the weakest areas on that podcast um, was was about taxation. But absolutely, when, when people are talking about taxes, uh, there is, it's particularly if you're someone who uh, sees that they would benefit from the wealthy being taxed, because in, in the form of, of a payment uh, in kind to you, infrastructure, preschool, I, I know they're floating a lot of different programs. Um, y- you should be asking yourself what the cost is. And if you don't know what the cost is and people aren't telling you what that cost is, realize that someone's trying to smuggle in um, a smokescreen. And that is, uh, that, that means there's, you know, we talk about mental models a lot here, that there's second order consequences that they, they refuse to discuss, um, some kind of action or penalty that's going to be down the way. And, it, you know, as we're talking about Elon Musk, 
Imagine if he takes Tesla away, right? Even if you looked at it within the United States, the debate between him moving to Oklahoma or Texas versus California, the job loss, the, the advantage lost. Imagine if we're talking about not just the, the technologies of today, but really the technologies of the future from you know the best drone pilots, uh, the best in artificial intelligence, the best in fusion and fission. Uh, the technologies that, that many people believe we need for green, if those people say, listen, I don't feel like I'm going to benefit here or that I'm going to, I can move somewhere else to benefit greater, what does that mean for the growth of our country? Um, and and I, I think there's a there's pushback because they'll say, well, wait a second, what about all the kids that don't go to preschool? The fact that we don't have some of these other services that we can provide. And I, I always want to ask, is that, is that the only way we can do what we're doing, right? Is, is this really the right level of trade-off? And, and so taxes is, is a great example of where I feel like MMT says, well, we need taxes to, to calm down inflation. But when you ask Stephanie on this podcast, what, what I got from her seemed a little bit less specific, right? So, I mean, I, I heard the term force of traction used when they say, well, why, why do we need taxes? Force of traction, which means you need a penalty. You need people to go out there and work, which again, I don't like that framing because it sounds like the go- we work for the government and the government doesn't work for us. Now, I, 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 have you ever heard someone tell me that that you work for the government and therefore, and, and, and you're wrong if you, if you see it the other way? Um, I know in the libertarian community, that's the thought that's out there. I've heard folks say things like, uh, you know, government, every more, every new restrictive policy that comes out for the government is just another indication that the government reviews all the money in the economy as the government's and what you have in your bank account is what the government has decided it's going to allow you to keep, or it's, it's Mm -hmm. what's going to, it's what it's going to allow you to have to dispose of at your discretion. So the thought is definitely out there. Um, I don't know that I've heard anyone so much say it as you're working for the government instead of the government working for you, but it rings true. Yeah. I, I find it very odd that the the people that I hear pushing this type of mentality um, seem to go against tradition and the ideas of tradition. I, I don't know why I'd want to feel obligated to pay into a government uh, that apparently if, if I take all their history and, and, and what I'm hearing frequently on, on social media has been built off of blood, uh, built, built off of massacres, killings, um, enslavement of people, right? There's like literally no traditions you'd want to maintain. Uh, and yet here it's like, well, no, but the, you need to have this responsibility back to the government. But why? <laughs> right. You know, I think anybody who has more of a a traditional type of leaning, uh, which we often call conservative or conservatism, which is you know maintaining some of the the past that we that we believe to be the best of it, and then to move it forward, can't really buy into that, right? Um, so, so I, I guess to me it's a it's a non argument, or at least I've never heard it put away that I can I can agree with. Um, but but if I if I continue on some of the reasons she says we have to pay taxes, it's force subtraction, which is I think forcing people to to have to earn money so they can pay taxes. Uh, it's removing dollars so we can't spend them. Those are exactly what was said. We remove dollars so we can't spend them so we can control inflation. Now, again, you want to think that they're penalizing when they talk about taxation. They're talking about going after Elon Musk and the other super wealthy. 
there's only so much money that those people are going to be spending that's going to hit inflation before they come down to the lower ranks. And and I hear this and the, what comes to mind is like there's no store of value in currency at all, uh, which I think for many people that listen to this podcast will go, duh, right? That's why we have cryptocurrencies. That's why we have gold. That's why we have um, we have other stores of value. But I mean, they're really creating an environment that, I mean, you, you don't want to have any money in currency. Zero. Exactly. Right? I mean, if they're, if they're going to just take it away so you can't spend it. Right. And this is another question I have in listening to the MMT debate is, who's going to determine the optimal way to administer these tax programs so that one side isn't being unfairly taxed more than another side? Because it's not right. just about what tax rate is being applied to what group. It's about the, the downstream effects. Um, you know, so most taxes, the income tax is regressive. We know that. Mm-hmm. So even though poor people may be paying less in, in overall taxes, they're the ones who get hurt the worst in a lot of tax policy changes. So who's going to be looking at that? Who, who's going to be uh, making sure that those downstream effects are being accounted for? And right. one thing you have to remember is, you know, like we said, if you're taxing companies, if you're taxing the, the wealthy and the, the people who own these companies and run these companies at a high rate, they're going to have an incentive to bolt the country. I mean, we've seen examples. Mm-hmm. Puerto Rico is running a program right now where entrepreneurs can go down there and their tax rate is like maxed out at like 4% or something like that. Um, Italy has got a program where they're they're capping personal income taxes at like a, I forget what it is, like $125,000 or something. They're trying to attract wealth into their countries. Mm-hmm. So if someone like Elon Musk were to pack up and take off, well, how many jobs are we going to lose in the U.S.? So right. how many people are going to end up on unemployment or, or on the government welfare program because of that? Right. So we've, we've yeah. got to have a system in place that's going to encourage people to the Jeff Bezos is in the, the Elon Musk to stay here and to continue expanding to continue hiring people. It, it, it can't all yeah. fall onto the shoulders of the taxpayer to do that. No, I, I think that's right. Uh, th- there's, there's questions that we can ask each other. I mean, you know, one of the things we want to talk about in this podcast is ways in which you're going to be having conversations with people. Uh, if, if someone that you're meeting with says, listen, you know, MMT is an accurate description of how the economy works and we can deploy all of these policies. Um, I think you can go back to him and ask him, I mean, on taxes as an example, well, what about reversibility, right? Like what happens if, if we hit a, hit a point? We talk about speed limits in MMT. Do we hit a point where we've actually uh, discouraged innovation and we've discouraged the people that are creating this type of environment for us? Um, to, to actually be, you know, the next generation co- um, country. And, 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 you know, that that right there is actually one of the parts that really, really bothers me and it, about this, this discussion is that I feel like we're talking about 20th century gains and how to divvy them up uh, rather than how to create the 21st and 22nd century America. Um, that and, and, and maybe we're talking past each other or, or I'm, what I'm hearing them just doesn't resonate with me. But, you know, they talk about green tech it's it's always about capping CO2 and saving the planet, which I think appeals to people. And if we go back to sort of the, the Jonathan Haidt model, um, people that, that 
talk about care and harm, it really resonates with them. They think, well, I'm saving people. Uh, for me, to me, with, without a new growth engine, right, there has to be a frontier that you're building towards or there has to be uh, new areas that you explore. Space um, could, could be one as an example. Uh, you're not going to have growth. And without growth, you're going to have minimization. And if you have minimization, you have, a, you have a decrease in the standard of living. And I don't know anybody who wants their standard of living to go down. So unless we're talking about systems and incentive structures that actually promote innovation, we're talking about a uh, we're not we're, we're talking about a future that looks bleak to me, and, and I don't feel like you know again here we're we're talking about how we can unleash that technology, how we can improve it. Uh, it it feels like it's mostly just because I I don't think that we've got great examples of governments being able to do that on their own, uh, and I, I I always come back to it. I think if Russia um, you know, the fight between the USSR and the United States, I, I would think that if if central planning and strong science and math, which I would say the Russians and the USSR excelled at, if that was all they needed to be a strong economy, a futuristic economy, then they would have won the war. I mean, that's that's just, I guess that's the way I look at it. And it's the same thing I'll say with China when I look under the hood of their economy. Uh, people look at how how great it is. Well, I think that we don't really see the fissures. I don't think that the growth looks as robust when you actually get into the, the finer points. And so I, I guess it it concerns me um, that it doesn't seem to be a lot of – this feels like short-term. Like Again, I'll, I'll say it. I think they do a good job of describing um, actually how money works through the plumbing. And I think they make a lot of assumptions about the the intricacies of trust – uh, the relationship between citizens and the government and, and sort of a future uh, that they, they think that, well, we can just spend money and we'll, we'll just figure out a way to take the inflation out. We can just tax them uh, without sort of some other uh, components or, or connective tissue, as I, as I like to think about it. Right. So it's, a little bit of my rant on that. <laughs> no, I think you're, you're accurate. It, it seems to be a simplistic way of looking at a complex system. Um, a well, don't worry. We'll 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 know to we'll know what to do when the time comes, and we we have no reason to trust that that's that's the truth. And uh, during the podcast, didn't one of the one of the hosts ask Stephanie Kelton what she would have to see before she would start to admit that maybe MMT wasn't working? And, and yes, she has to falsify yeah, it. And we, we basically got, I don't remember exactly what she said. I just wrote down in my notes here, not answer. <laughs> so maybe, do you remember that part? I, I, okay. I do. And, and I remember thinking, this is a great question. And yeah, her response was, um, I couldn't, right. there is nothing that would falsify. MMT. Exactly. And we mentioned that before, uh, probably the closest example we have to MMT in action was the, the, uh, the, the the stimulus after the 2008 financial crisis and any criticism of it it would, is just met with well we didn't spend enough right right and, right. and when you have an, a printing press that can print unlimited dollars that's always going to be an answer well we just didn't spend enough it just wasn't enough it just wasn't enough it just wasn't enough right so yeah yeah and, and I think to that point if if it was run by a machine. That was not looking for votes. That was simply looking at specific metrics and pumping in and taking taking out uh, amounts of money. 
you know, you, you could take some of that criticism off the table. I think there's other very valid criticisms that uh, would still prevent me from from endorsing it. But um, but that's not the way it's going to operate. It's going to be run by by individuals and um, the incentive structures that they operate under. So exactly. Yeah, just one quick say. question for you. I just I don't know that there's an answer to this, but is there a way we could we could set up a, uh, a, a basically controlled experiment for MMT to see if it would work. Is there a, a sort of a, a box that we could build and say, okay, we're going to, we're going to do MMT for this thing, this one issue. And we're going to see how it goes. I, I, because at this point we just don't have a lot of evidence <laughs> that right. this is going to work. Right. And I would be more than happy if we there don't. was some way we could have a controlled experiment to see. I mean, I would love to see what comes out of it and what evidence they have. And if I can yeah, see yeah, that it works, I, I mean, I'd be more than happy to get on board with it. I just, I'm just not seeing that evidence. I'm just not seeing a lot of compelling arguments coming from this camp other than what boils down to trust us. It'll work. Yeah, I'm not either. I, the I, I sort of default to what have other countries tried and how close does it resemble what their policy objectives are, how they how they describe the situation. Uh, and so here, here's a good example. I know Japan, in fact, on this podcast, you mentioned Japan expanding uh, their balance sheets uh, for, for 20, uh, I think it was about 20 years or so, how uh, they haven't seen a rise in inflation. Um you know, one one point I'll say about that. Well, and I think I mentioned this last time. Lynn Alden looked at the expansion of the M two money supply, so not the balance sheet at the Fed, but the actual money supply out out in the uh, the wild, and found that they didn't expand in two the way we've done. Just, I mean, the amount of expansion we've seen in M two is historical just in the last twelve months. So it's it's difficult to say uh, to to run that comparison. Um, the other point that I, I looked at today. Uh, so I was I was curious about GDP ratios relative to uh, government spending versus the rest of the economy, and you know Europe. Uh, if you took the average of all European um, European Union countries, it's about forty five percent of the economy. The United States, in, when I was in college, we did about eighteen twenty percent. We're now at thirty three percent, and Japan is thirty three percent. Now I, I don't know. I don't really draw a conclusion from that other than. Um, there's there's a couple of parts that are a little bit different, right? Japan expanded its balance sheet, but it's not taking up 50% of its economy, right, from a government perspective. So it still has a lot of private enterprise. And I, and I think, you know, you take into account um, the, the lack of expansion at the money supply, the lack of government growth into the economy, and then the deleveraging of the private sector. And it's an interesting play in how that experiment has run. Um, so, could we actually run an experiment to try and see how MMT works? Well, um, I guess Japan is one example um, that and we, we sort of see the results there. Um, and there, there's a lot of other data points we could look at. Um, right. But, uh, and the difficulty comes uh, is yeah, how do you extrapolate those results out to the larger economy? Exactly. How do you take what exactly. happened in Japan and apply it to the U.S., given that they're two different countries? Uh, two different, two different types of consumers, two different consumer sentiments, right. uh, two different types of attitudes towards mm-hmm. capitalism and government. I would imagine. 
Um, so may, yeah, maybe comparing us to Japan is a lot like what we were talking about earlier, comparing early 2020s pseudo peacetime to early 1940s wartime, uh, you know, right. on a hard currency versus a fiat currency that we have today. Uh, it, maybe it's just not possible. <laughs> well, so I, I think I think we've we've kind of pulled the or done a full circle here. We've kind of come back. I think the the, the question was or the topic of their podcast was, um, you know, does MMT uh, has it has it actually won the debate on on spending on fiscal spending versus monetary? And I, I think it hasn't won us over. Uh, it hasn't won us over. And I tell I think maybe if we see more data uh, or we see these policies. Um, go out. So I, I guess you know there, there's going to be some really interesting discussions. If if Stephanie uh, and and others in the MMT community really have the reins when they do the fiscal stim- or the the infrastructure discussions and that that policy, and we see how that plays out, I mean, we won't know for years. Uh, but that that may be the first time we see MMT really enacted, and and we can see either the uh, all of the benefits or all the damage. Yeah. And I, what I fear is that the results will be so far removed from the action that put those results into effect that any politician or economist would just be able to point back and say, "Oh well, that's that's not the result." The result that you're seeing isn't because of our MMT yeah. policies. It's because you know Elon Musk is a jerk, or you know, <laughs> you know, you know Donald Trump's a Putin puppet. You know, <laughs> Russia, yeah, it's Russia's fault. Right. Russia interfered. So well, and, and th- th- that really takes me back to Naval's comment that uh, macroeconomics is just voodoo magic, <laughs> yes, right? <yes. laughs> At some point, you just no matter what happened in the past, no matter what I predicted. It wasn't what I thought it was going to be, and that's yeah, just the yeah. way it is. How about an under over twenty fifty? Are we still going to be blaming everything on Putin? Oh, I <laughs> yeah, will. <he> will. <laughs> I'm never going to stop. I, you know, I'm never going to right, stop right. unless Lex Friedman interviews him and he's able to confirm without a shadow of a doubt that that didn't happen. <laughs> he's not his problem. Then right. I'm going to blame him. I'm just going right. to long after he's he's gone. Well, he's he's never going to be gone. His his he's going to be a brain and floating in a jar. He's still going to be manipulating the world, I'm sure. Well, I love his accent, so I'd be <laughs> right. fine with that. I, I love to this. <laughs> goes yeah. back to goes back to watching early Bond right, films, right, yeah. right? I have to get out and ride my horse without my shirt on this afternoon, so yeah. Oh, that's right. <laughs> so. Oh my gosh, that could be a topic for another day right, for sure. Yeah. For sure, I guess I got to hit it, get well, it horse, horse first, but yeah, so yeah, yeah, well, yeah, order of operations. Right, yeah, uh, little details. Well, well, thanks everyone for tuning in, hearing our second discussion of MMT. I know that we're going to have more of these because it's a it's a major topic uh, for everyone in this country and also around the world as more governments are looking for ways in which to to grow their economies, spend money. So uh, we'll definitely circle back to this. But uh, but thank you for tuning in. Wherever you are, uh, go find us. Uh, as I said before, we'd love to hear your thoughts. Give us some comments. Give us some feedback. You can also find us at mentallyunscripted.com. Uh, sign up there and, and, and leave, uh, leave some yeah. comments. But uh, until then, take care. Be safe. And uh, well, just be aware of all the MMTs exactly. coming after you. And just, just want to throw one thing out there. We got a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. So let's get all some right. more of those. Oh, well, thank you. Yes, yes. We'd love to get some more yeah. of those. It's probably uh, my mom. We'd love to hear from you. Count. <laughs> it doesn't matter who it came from. Remember, incentives matter. That's fine. We'll, we'll, we'll take it. We'll take it. All right. Until next time, take care. <laughs>